Hi, my name is Doug Sundheim, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tammy Nasir, and on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with Doug Sundheim. Doug is the president of the Sunheim Group, a consulting agency that focuses on strategy execution and team development, and whose clients include Time Warner, SAP, International Baccalaureate Organization, and Morgan Stanley. In addition to being a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Doug is the author of the book, Taking Smart Risks, How Sharp Leaders Win When Stakes Are High, which will be the focus of this episode. Hi, Doug. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Tim Beer. You know, a few years ago, there was this adaptation that so many of us had to come to terms with, and that was that we couldn't normalize change into being the new normal, but that we had to accept continuous change and adaptation to change as being par for the course of this new, faster-paced, globally connected environment. And I could tell you, looking back over the past 5, 10 years, I've seen that evolution in mindset from wondering where the end point of today's change lies to wondering what the next wave of change will bring and how do we navigate these new waters. But while we might be more at ease, I'll say, with change, there's something that we've all seen and perhaps experienced in the past two years or so, and that is how we're now operating in this environment of increasing risk. And that's what made me think of your book, Doug, because as you write in the opening chapter of your book, what we dread most about taking risks is not simply the uncertainty it will give rise to, but more that fear of failure, that it's better to avoid or steer clear of taking risks and play it safe than to suffer some form of failure. But of course, we've seen many examples uh, recently and over the past couple of years of established and storied companies playing it safe uh, can come with a lot steeper cost than any potential failure might fear in taking that deep dive. And as you write in your book, through your own work, you found that there are actually five distinct dangers that come from playing it safe. So before we talk about taking smart risks, I was wondering if you could describe what these five dangers are from playing it safe. Uh, sure. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the dangers of playing it safe are, uh, I don't know that I have them in the exact order that I wrote them, can't quite remember, but um, the, you know, the idea that you... Um, you know, you kind of you lose your momentum in um, in whatever you're 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 working on. I mean, I think I'd probably pull back and before diving into what those, um, I'd love to kind of touch on something else that you 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 were bringing up um, about the speed of the speed of change because I think it it kind of precedes some of these these risks, which is um, you know the the I think there's this belief that the world is changing really fast and we've got to, as the expression says, innovate or die, right? We need right. to innovate or die, innovate or die. And, you know, one of my fundamental problems with that is the idea of innovation um, tends to stand front and center. And you've got boards of directors, C-suite executives, executives all in place. What we need is innovation. We need innovation. And I think that is uh, ass backwards. Because an innovation is a solution. And it's a solution to a problem. 
And I think oftentimes people think that the solution is to innovate more. But the real problem is what are your customers experiencing now? How do we solve that? And lo and behold, if you stay there, you come up with innovations. And um, the reality is that's what risk-taking is. The risk-taking is getting um, – you know, I, I've really, even since I've written the book, I've come to believe more and more and more that the closer you get to the customer, the closer you get, and whatever the customer is. I mean, if you're if you're an actor, the customer is you know the the audience. If you're selling soap, it's uh, it's the soap buyer, and, and and so on. It's it's whoever's consuming whatever you're doing. If you get into their minds, what are they thinking about? What do they what do they believe? What do they not believe? How are they evolving? How are they changing? Um, this, the solutions start to present themselves. They start to um, uh, just show up what I should be doing. And that decreases your fear of failure because you feel so close to the need that you're willing to jump in and take some risks. Actually, one of the stories I write about the book was how Sherwin-Williams did this. Um, uh, 2008 financial crash happens. Uh, there is... Uh, it's kind of a long story. I'll, I'll try to go through it very quickly. But 2008 financial crash happens. They had for a long time been competing to open up paint stores. And the, in, the big insight they had 25, 30 years ago was um, uh, contractors don't travel very far for paint because their time is money and they're on a paint job. So they'll go to whatever paint store is closest. So the insight they had was open up as many retail stores as we possibly can, saturate an area, and our share of market will grow faster than everyone else. So they did that. It was really successful. Real estate got really expensive. They could no longer do that because everyone else, every other paint contractor started doing that. But they had this insight and they did the research and they knew that time was money. And that drove everything they did. So when the, when the crash happened and real estate start, started to get cheap and people didn't buy, they said, let's double down. We know that's the insight. And it was, it was in many ways an innovation distribution to really continually saturate uh, a market. But it, but it was only because they really knew that their customers, what was driving the behavior of their customers through research they had done, that when it was a really risky bet, and the shareholders push back against them. You know, we're in a recession and you're going up and you're signing new leases all over the place. Are you crazy? And they said, we're going to come out of the recession. There are going to be homes built again. And we know that people are going to want to, uh, people are going to have to paint those. And we are going to be in a good position. We're not going to shutter stores. We're going to open them. And it turned out, I think by 2009, 2010, their stock rebounded. And it turned out to be a very smart bet. So you could say, hey, they weren't afraid of failure. And that's true. But in reality, they were, uh, they were solving a customer problem. And, 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 and it's something I think that kind of drives me a little crazy when I hear people talk about innovation as a, as a process or a product itself. It's not. All of us innovate. We all innovate every day. And we do it best when we have a problem right in front of us. So I, I just I didn't want to I don't want to step over uh, that whole idea of fear of failure. And that in reality, uh, it's really just um, I would actually reframe it as it's not really fear of failure. I mean, yeah, we all have that. That's a basic human reaction but it's it's lack of true being in the mindset of your customers that has you not really see what the right next steps are to make and to do so i hope that didn't go too far off and that kind of made sense but i've been thinking a lot about that topic for the past couple of years and i think it's a really important one no i think it actually is very much on point because 
the idea here, and I completely agree with you, is that we shouldn't innovate just for the sake of innovation. There should be some pragmatic, practical reason behind it. What is the pain point or what is the solution that it's going to allow us to offer that people are genuinely interested in saying, yes, that's going to help improve things, make things better. And in many ways, this is kind of what is the very definition of what you're talking about in your book about when it comes to taking risks that okay, we shouldn't take risks just for the sake of taking risks, right? We don't want to suddenly become, you know, risk is kind of like disruption. We just got to disrupt things because we can. It's really about taking, as you call them, smart risks. These are risks that the payoff is there because it's going to lead to the resolution of some problem or the opening up of a new opportunity that's not being addressed that you can then tap into. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's and even as you just said that, it seems so obvious, right? Well, don't don't just innovate for innovation's sake, innovate to solve a problem. When you say that, it sounds, oh, yeah, of course, that's obvious. But and, and, and I think you'd probably you've probably experienced this and you've seen this in organizations. Um, but it's but, but it's not right. Uh, you see people trying, trying their darndest to innovate. Um, and, uh, you know, innovation takes on a life of its own. They think it's so important. Um, but, but in reality, if you start, uh, from, uh, a really well crafted problem statement that has a lot of, you know, clear, uh, you know, in the marketing world, they write up personas. What is the persona of these two or three, uh, customers that are feeling this pain point. Don't give it to me in a vague or cliche way. You know, tell me, you know, to, to keep going with this painting contractor example, if you were to, to write a persona, you know, uh, John goes into work on Saturday, or excuse me, on a Friday. Uh, he's had a really tough time managing all these different clients. It's always hard in his business to manage, you know, supply of his workers with the demand and making sure he can get the right painters at the right time. And, 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 and it's always been a challenge and he's a little bit worried right now about his family and what's going on. And if he, can he make enough money and he wants someone to make his life easier. And there's, there's, there's a few different places and you go through how to make the life easier and you come up pretty quickly with the insight of like, let's not make John travel very fast far for paint. And so what seems like an innovation, excuse me, a distribution innovation in the paint world is like just an obvious answer to an obvious problem. And I really think that most innovations and most risks really are when you get down to it, like obvious answers to obvious problems that become less and less risky every time you think about it. You know, one of the things I, I often talk about is this idea of you just need to get yourself to like a 65 to 75% surety that it's like a, it's a good idea. I mean, it might not work, um, but it's a good idea. You know, in, in my book, I, I talk, see the future now. Uh, it sounds like, you know, you get a crystal ball and you're, you know, all these data points and you're doing some really, you know, fantastical modeling to figure it out. No, that, that's the, see the future now is like spend a whole bunch of time with Johns in the painting world. You're like, I see the future. They'd love it if they had just had paint stores closer or, you know, something around an innovation in the sneaker world. It's not any sort of high minded you know, brainstorming in some creative pod where all the smartest people who can do data analytics, it's like, get in there. Yeah, data analytics will help, but get in there and just tell the stories. Like, what's going on with the customer? What's his pain point? Well, how's he feeling this? How's he feeling that? And then all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, we should do this. Yeah, of course. Of 
course we should do that. That's so obvious now. So, um, so again, just another way to look at fear of failure. Uh, fear of failure is really, um, uh, I think, born from you're not spending enough time with the problem. Okay, so now that we've kind of gotten this understanding of how we can better approach and understand our the feel of failure that kind of hold, holds us back, not just in terms of innovation, but also in terms of embracing those moments where we have to take those smart risks. Let's dive right now into the real meat of your book, and that is how can we take what you call these smart risks? And before we begin that, though, I think we need to have a common frame of reference in terms of how we view and understand risk. Because as you write, how we perceive our situation impacts how we understand the nature of the risk we're about to take. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things uh, one of the things I talk about is this idea of something worth find something worth fighting for. I mean, mm. what what is going to contextualize all the pain you're about to go through when you're taking a risk. Uh, and by contextualize, I mean, what's going to make, what's going to make it worthwhile, you know, to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, getting yourself in a mindset for that's something that I would want to, uh, really fight for, um, is, uh, you, you know, so there's five big sections of the book. All of them, I say, are just one step closer to decreasing the amount of risk. Uh, think of it this way. If when you go into any, you know, harebrained idea, when you're out, you know, having dinner with your family one day, like, oh, we should do this business or I should do that. You're at like a 25 percent chance, probably a 10 percent chance of succeeding, 90 percent chance of failing. And, you know, I think that the I think that taking smart risks is really about. I can never get to a hundred percent chance of succeeding and zero percent chance of failing. But how do I, how do I begin to shift that dynamic until, like I said, you get to about that 65 to 75% surety that you could succeed. So that's what the five sections of the book are really about. Each one is designed to pull out a little bit more of the risk and help increase your chances of success a little bit more and more. And so the first one is this idea of find something worth fighting for. That's the idea of, you know, what, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to use the word passion because, uh, you know, sometimes that's kind of overused. It can mean lots of things to different people. But, you know, find something that, that you're willing to take a few licks, take a few hits, get a few scars. And, 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 and when you come out of it, you'll still be motivated because it's a really important thing to you. Um, so I think in many ways, uh, that's one of the most important things because it, it creates um, a grounding in something that's going to keep you motivated. Um, you know, the, the next one is this idea of see the future now, you know, get into those, like I said, personas in marketing, get into the customer's mindset. How do they buy it? What do they think about, uh, how do they, uh, and, and you know, I, I keep saying customers, but you know, this can also work just internally. If you're doing, let's say internal project management at a, at a bank, and you're doing large-scale change around technical systems, let's say, um, you know, you, you still want to see the future now. Your customers, they are the bank employees, and they have needs in how they're delivering services to their customers. So same sort of thing. Go through the stories. How's this going to work? How's that going to work? How's this going to work? Um, so, so, that, so that will also begin to take more and more risk and, and deliver to you more and more certainty that the idea is probably heading in the right direction. Um, 
uh, act fast, learn fast. We've heard, we've heard a lot about this. That's the next big section of the book. And that's, uh, okay, great. You got the insights. What are you going to do? Well, you know, until you experiment, you don't even know if your insights are that good. So let's try it. Uh, how can I do it in a way that's not going to totally burn me? Um, can I, uh, can I do, can I pilot this? Can I do a small batch run of that? Can we get some input over here? And then you're, you're going back with that act fast, learn fast, and you're, you're then going and you're recreating your vision for the future. Um, those are the three big things. So it's, it's those three. The, the next two are kind of creating a context for those things to happen. But those, those are the three big things. Something that I want to fight for, I start to go out and get smarter and smarter and smarter and smarter every day about the problem and how people are acting, the nuances, how people are framing the problem and what they would actually buy versus what they – would theoretically buy, you know, it, it, it's very different when you ask someone, what are you going to spend versus actually getting them to part with money from their wallet and then uh, act fast, learn fast, keep doing that rapid iterations. Um, so those, those three kind of form the nut of what I would call smart risk taking. And I mean, if you go back hundred, 200 years, uh, it was the same. It's always been the same thing. I mean, that's, that is the story of successful business right there in a nutshell. So, Doug, you just mentioned how one of the first critical steps to making sure we are taking those smart risks is to first identify what you called something we're fighting for, that goal or idea where the pain point is greater and are not doing something to affect change as opposed to playing it safe and trying to not change some aspect of our current reality. And when I read this, what came to my mind was something that I usually identify as doing purpose-led work, that we're not simply doing something or pushing forward an initiative either to keep up with our competition or doing or what we see as being today's shining object that everyone's enraptured by, which is kind of what we were discussing at the beginning of this conversation in terms of innovation. Are we just innovating for the sake of innovation, or are we doing it because we're trying to resolve a situation or to tap into a future opportunity? Now, I did a TEDx talk recently where I shared my own story of how it was only by finding that sense of purpose in what I was doing and being able to articulate what is the value of what I'm doing, of how my own way I'm moving the needle in making things better or making a difference that I felt a genuine sense of enduring success and fulfillment. And, you know, what was interesting about giving that talk was how in so many conversations with attendees at this TED event, there was this common question I was asked of, how do I find that sense of purpose in what I do? Because... I don't feel it. And for some, they weren't even sure they ever did. And this was interesting because when I turned the focus onto looking at their past work experiences in a very short period of time, as we discussed their past memorable moments and the times they felt challenged, they began to realize, wait a minute, there was a point in time where I felt a sense of meaning and purpose that I felt pride in what I did. And I was willing to push myself, to challenge myself, to improve how I did this work. So as much as we might think purpose-led work is something that only select few can experience, the reality is that it's there for the picking if we know what to look for. So in terms of taking these smart risks, Doug, what should we be looking for to know that this idea, this project, this goal is something worth fighting for? Yeah, I wish I had an easy answer to that because um, obviously uh, it... it um, that that you know the the formulaic answer to that is one that um, is you know just probably inauthentic uh, and uh, but this idea of experimenting um, and you know in, in the book I talk about this idea that um, there you call it the kind of three D's of figuring out what your something worth fighting for what your purpose um, uh, led work or, or or your passion. 
whatever words really work for you are. And, you know, I think I think the lucky few they kind of they're just destined for it. You know, the 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 prodigy at age five in an instrument, or you know, the person who just absolutely knows they love some business and they start working, you know, on coding something when they're nine or ten. Um, you know, the, the simple truth is, you know, 99% of us don't, don't have that. And so we've got to come across it another way. Um, and you know, some people later in life, they get it. This is the second D that's kind of destiny. The second one is you get it delivered to you, you know, something bad happens in, in and around your world you, you, and you want to fight for some sort of legislative changes, um, or things of that nature. But, you know, and that's again, a very small number of us, but for the most part, it's a, it's a process of discovery. Um, you know, how curious, uh, are you, um, you know, how can you just keep a variety of different balls in the air? I, I, I don't have any data on this, but if I were to guess, um, a lot of times it doesn't really get clear. And this is just kind of now having coached a variety of executives over 20 years. You know, I, I, I tend to see it's not until you're probably, you know, in your mid 30s at the earliest, sometimes that's your 40s where you start just saying, you know what? okay, I've been doing these like kind of 10 different things and I just don't, I, I, these eight, I can do them really well. I can probably make a living at them, but I don't love it. But these other two, it's like, man, when I'm in that space and I'm doing it, I just, it's just, things feel like they're clicking. Um, and, and, and don't give up until, you know, and, and also if you still have the 10 and you're like, I don't know, I'm 45 and I don't know what the hell you're talking about, uh, then just, that's okay too. Don't, don't worry about it. Um, just keep trying to make a difference in the ways that you want to make a difference. And I honestly think, you know, again, I wrote the third D is discovery, I think I think what that discovery really is, the more it's been it's been about five years since I wrote the book. And I think it's more of a um, it's appealing away. I would say that the thing that you would love and really would be passionate about, um, you know, if, if, if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you're in your mid 20s and you have that question or you're in the early 30s, you have that question, you say, gosh, I don't, I don't know what it is at all. I would say you do, you have it, you're, you're, you're in some way living it right now, but you're also living, you know, 10 other, 15 other things that really aren't it. And, and you're not seeing the signal for the noise. And so I think it's a pairing away of what really matters. You know, every time I'm faced with a challenge at work, I just love this aspect of things. And you just always say to yourself, but you know what? I always have to do these 30 other things too. And I think as you get older, you go, you know what? No, I don't have to do those other things. Screw that. I'm just going to do these few critical things and I'm great at it. And I love it. I mean, for me in my own work, you know, I started off more generally in the leadership development world, but it wasn't until the last several years that I said, you know what, I just like working with very senior teams who are struggling to advance the ball in a line together. I don't, I don't necessarily, I, I don't do trainings anymore. Uh, I, I don't do quote unquote, just straight leadership work. I like working in context, in strategy with just very senior teams. You know, that, that's a hard thing to say when you're first starting out, um, because maybe that's not the business you can get. So, um, so stick with it and, and keep that kind of pairing process until you get down to the nugget and the core of what's really important to you. It also reminds me of something that you mentioned earlier uh, when we were discussing this whole idea about taking smarter risks and the example you gave of Sherwin-Williams and this notion of how we have to see the world through our customers' eyes. 
So that basically informs those intuitive points that we all have. And then as the more we discuss with other people who are having those touch points with our customers, they kind of have those insights that when you start piecing it together, you start noticing things. And so it really, it is a question of making the time, literally stopping and to have these conversations. And then after that, really deciding what it is exactly you want to do going forward, which is probably why a lot of us struggle with risk, because we're not giving ourselves that opportunity to really just put the brakes on our day. We're just too busy in reactive mode to actually sit down and say, let's think about this. Let's discuss this. Let's touch base with other people get their insights. And so we can, as you say, see the world through our customers' eyes. Exactly. I, th- I, think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's a, it's a timing issue. I think there's a cultural issue. If you're not busy doing something, some transactional thing right now, you're not adding value. If you're just kind of daydreaming a little bit, you're not adding value. Um, you know, someone with their feet on the desk sitting back and throwing a ball around with a friend, just kind of shooting the breeze. That's not, that's not the idea of a productive person. Productive person's got their head down, they're working and they're advancing some task that has probably a pretty short term timeline that in which it needs to be delivered. And Oh, by the way, uh, it's now years later and you've just kind of been shuffling the papers around the same desk the big ideas never come. I, I think you're right that it has more to do with just taking the time to do that, seeing that as valuable. And now if we go up to the organizational level, actually having bosses that believe that that's valuable, that encourage that, that don't come down with the whip uh, uh, in, 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 in seeing people engage in those sorts of activities um, is really important. They've got to be productive. It's not just, you know, we like to play ping pong four hours a day. They've got to be productive. Um, so you got to kind of experiment with ways to talk about uh, ideation and the value of it uh, in the organization. But you do need that time for creative um, creative thinking. I mean, I, uh, one of the things I work with a lot of clients on, for example, is just um, pretty simple thing, carve out, you know, just show me, let's, let's go look at your calendar. We take a look at the calendar. Show me where, where do you do your, where do you do some creative thinking, you know, in here? Uh, you know, and it's kind of like, mm, I, I don't, I mean, more and more these days, I see people's calendars are scheduled from, you know, 8.30 AM to 6.30 PM with every sort of meeting you could imagine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes I just say, guess what? You, I don't care where you do it. You're going to pick three or four hours somewhere. If you could do two hours here, two hours there, great. You're carving it out. Well, how am I going to do that? You're just going to do it. You're going to schedule it, and we're going to, you're going to figure out how to answer the questions uh, if, uh, if people ask you about it. Because unless you just carve that time out, it's not going to show up. I, I think we all love to think, oh, okay. and, and, and that's sometimes I will, there's a lot of research that says, well, that's not the best way to do it. You know, sometimes your best ideas come to you in the shower. Right. Um, and that's fine. That's good. Uh, and it may be, it may be that if you, if you're sitting down and every Friday morning from 9am to 11, you're just kind of like reading some interesting stuff you don't normally get to read that will work in the background. And then three days later, when you're in the shower, the idea will come, but you have to have laid that groundwork for it to happen. So I, that's another point that I think is really important. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, uh, to your point, it is that, that common thing that the good ideas come to me in my shower. 
Well, that's because it's the one time you schedule in your day or one of the few times in your day where you schedule where I'm not going to be working. I'm not going to be in a meeting. I'm not going to be replying to these emails, writing that memo and so forth. So that's the time you actually give your brain time to wander and start making those intuitive connections and so forth. And the very thing that you're pointing out about scheduling it, I've actually even had this discussion with clients because I've had leaders say to me, well, look, I love this idea of doing this, but I don't have time in my day to do that. And I said, of course you don't have time because everything's scheduled. And I'll be honest with you, if you don't schedule this, it's never going to happen. It's just going to be this quaint, nice idea I wish I had the time for. And unfortunately, you don't have the luxury of saying, well, this is something that is a luxury. This is mission critical if you're going to move beyond simply being reactive to really being responsive. And I think that's also what takes the edge off of taking risks because now you have that opportunity to evaluate it, to kind of contemplate it, and to figure out what is the right way for us to take or these risks that maybe others in our industry don't see. But when we take it now, the short-term pain might be there, but then we've created the foundation that when the conditions change, we're already there ready to meet our clients' needs because we anticipated that need was going to come. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great point. And, you know, Doug, I love how early on in your comments you were talking about how what's critical to this process is also that we are, as leaders, creating that culture within an organization. Because so far, a lot of the things that we've been discussing have been pretty much on the individual level. What can I do as a leader? What are the things that I can do to become more comfortable with taking smart risks? So I'd like to broaden that scope, look at how as leaders, how do we encourage smart risk taking within an organization as a whole? Like, how do we ensure that we are, in fact, creating a culture or workplace environments where our employees not only have the permission, but they feel safe in taking smart risks that will benefit our organization and its goals. That we're not just, I don't want leaders listening to this conversation, getting inspired and saying, okay, let's put this in place and start putting those things into action. And then, you know, maybe after a couple of months, those old habits start to fall into place. You know, there's fires that need to be put out that kind of take their attention away. And then we start falling ourselves back into playing it safe, as opposed to you know, looking for those opportunities where we should really be pushing ourselves. Yeah, but you know, one of the one of the most um, one of the most powerful powerful things that I've found in um, doing this research for the book and working with clients is um, is defining what a smart failure is mm. for the for the organization in the organization. So we all know what a smart a smart success is, right? You put a plan together, you try it, and it does the exact things you wanted it to do. It makes this kind of money. It moves this thing forward. And you all look back and you go, hey, that was a really smart success. That's great. And I think everyone's instinct then is, let's replicate that. Great. Um, and so that's that's a good thing, but it doesn't necessarily create the conditions for smart risk taking, because I think you can look at those things and say, well, geez, I don't have an idea like that that's going to succeed like that. I, I, I you know, and, and I can't be sure that it's going to succeed. And I know they got a lot of attaboys and pats on the back for succeeding, but I'm not sure that mine are going to do that. So I don't know what to do. And it doesn't really motivate and inspire action. But but on, on the other hand, a smart failure does, because a smart failure says, hey, there's some things that you have to do. If you do all those things and you don't succeed, I will have deemed that a smart failure because you 
you ha- you found something worth fighting for. I mean, you had a real reason for being. You, you did the consumer research to to the degree that you needed to, uh, and whatever your consumer or customer is, you, you took the time. You saw the future. Now you, you you put some ideas together around experimentation. You tried the experimentation. You just couldn't get it out of the blocks. You communicated really well throughout the process, uh, and you couldn't get it out of the blocks. That's a smart failure. That deserves a pat on the back. Um, and, and now we can distinguish between a smart failure and a dumb failure. And now we have a, we have something where we can actually say to people, you you are going to get um, uh, reprimanded a bit because not it's not because you failed. It's because of the way that you approached it. Uh, and so I think sitting down with your organization and really figuring out what do we deem a smart failure in this organization to be is a really important process. I actually came across. Uh, in my research, a uh, a framework that Tata, the uh, you know kind of the GE equivalent in um, in India, uh, it's a um, uh, you know a global um, a multinational company in in a lot of different conglomerate, a lot of different industries, and uh, towards the back of the book, there's actually a um, a grading criteria for what they call the Dare to Try Award. Every year they have an innovation award uh, ceremony where they award, they fly to Mumbai, uh, all of the top people that were innovating over the year, and they give awards for the best commercialization and the best early stage uh, development. And there's like four different levels. And the, the final level is the Dare to Try Award. You, you did your best. You followed the process, and it didn't work out. We're going to bring, we're going to fly you to Mumbai. We're going to put you on stage and celebrate you alongside everyone else. And that sent really strong messages that it's about a smart process. It's not just about the outcome. Now, what I don't know is if you, if you, you know, I don't think you could probably win four Dare to Try Awards in a, in a row, right? I mean, at some point, the results do matter, but. I would venture to say, and I get this data, that if you're doing that over and over again, you figure out eventually how to win, how to succeed. So that, I think, is the biggest. Um, and, and they actually um, they actually let me publish the entire framework in the book. And so you can, you can see that at the end of the book. Um, so that's one of the biggest ones. You know, this, you know, the smaller stuff that you have on a day-to-day basis is just if you're a leader and you see someone really take a good shot, uh, at doing something, but you don't have all the criteria set up on what a you know successful failure is yet in your organization, you can really just acknowledge through a story in a public setting uh, how we got into it, what the process was, why you're really proud of this person. That sends a really strong message. So acknowledging publicly is really important. I think you know the last thing is individually as a leader, role modeling it yourself. Um, you know, uh, trying some stuff, failing at it. Uh, sharing with people how you went about it, which signals obviously very strongly, uh, hey, this is an acceptable set of behaviors around here. I love that last point you bring up, Doug, about sharing your failures, because that's really becomes really a learning experience. Because if you as an individual fail, and then you just take that insight and you say, okay, well, what did I learn from and so forth? You have an incremental improvement, but when it's shared, especially as you as a leader share it, that really gives people that sense that they're reframing how they see failure as not being, oh, this is a mistake, this is a regret, to, okay, how am I going to learn from this so that I'm stronger going forward, and how are we going to collectively benefit 
from that experience so that we know going forward what to anticipate, which again goes back to our point we discussed earlier about seeing the future. This is in many ways how we see the future because we've now taken this path. We now see what can happen. So as we go forward, we can now anticipate when that curveball is going to come so we can respond accordingly. Right. It, it, exactly. And it, as, as you frame it that way, I mean, it's, um, you know, this is an insight I think I had while I was writing the book, but, but it really became clear after I wrote the book. Um, the book's about taking smart risks. It tends to have a business focus and bent to it. Um, in general, people tend to um, equate it with innovation and things of that nature. But, but if you step back and look at it at a much more universal macro level, this is really just a book about life. This is a book about how to live uh, an effective life and then how to help others do that as well. And in, in so doing, create outcomes that are very valuable for individuals, teams, and organizations, whatever that means for you. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I think that in line with what you were just saying about um, being able to kind of capture that wisdom, share that wisdom, um, help others become better, uh, it is, uh, you know, a recipe for living what I think is arguably, you know, an enjoyable life. That, that, that you have a lot of fun and, and, you, and you can look back and say, uh, hey, that was great. You know, that was that was a lot of fun. I mean, I, th- I think at the end of the day, that's what we all want to do. I think everyone wants to just be able to look back and go, that was a lot. You know what? That was just uh, I got in it. I got myself a little dirty. I, I didn't hold back. I tried it, whatever that thing is. And and I, I just left it all out left it all out there uh, uh, on the life quote unquote field. And I, I've not come across very many people who, you know, uh, win or lose, succeed or fail. If they feel like they've put a lot of thought and energy and gone after something um, that have regretted it. It, it just, it, it, it just doesn't, doesn't happen. And I think anyone listening, you know, I, I, I would imagine that just kind of rings true uh, the, from from a story perspective, because I think that's the human experience. Um, and you know, if I could, you know, say a little bit about you know the world that we live in right now, I, I do think there is that risk of you know we've become so compartmentalized, so specialized, uh, and uh, sometimes we we as a result of that, you know, your university professor, you're focused on this tiny little narrow a silo of a topic in your research and you're inside of a large organization focused on this narrow piece of the business. Um, I think one of the risks of that is we just, we just lose the general idea of seeing a whole system and experimenting and trying and learning. Um, and I think we've got to fight, fight, fight to keep that alive in ourselves and our team and our organization. Cause I think as soon as we stop experimenting like that, um, we're going to be in a world of hurt as, 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 a, as a human uh, 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 species. So, um, you know, the, I, as I said, I wasn't really thinking at that level when I wrote the book, but it, it really occurred to me like this is just everything in life, right? Right. I agree. And, you know, to your point about how, you know, most of us just want to be able to feel like we took that chance. I remember reading a few weeks ago about a study that was done where they interviewed a large number of retired CEOs and asking them to look back on their 20, 30 years leading these different organizations and ask them what was the things they were happy about, what were the things they weren't happy about. And in terms of regret, 
none of them regretted their mistakes. What they regretted the most was those times where they said, you know what? I'm not going to take that risk on. I'm not going to take that chance. And they said, maybe it wouldn't have worked out. But the fact that they don't know definitively, that's their regret. And so I think this is really what's important for people to realize is that, you know, I mean, obviously, we're not talking about taking careless risks. But there are certainly these risks where we can see that there is a potential here to do something meaningful, to do something that's really going to change the conversation for the better. And yes, we might not get it right the first time. We might not get it right the second time. But if we don't take that chance and try to figure it out and try to learn from that process, and like you said, of having those smart failures then we're never really going to move the conversation forward. We're never going to really improve things. And we're going to continue to be in this, as you mentioned, this compartmentalized notion where we just got such a narrow view of things. Because in many ways, that's keeping things safe. It just makes it easier for us to manage things because we're just narrowing our focus to such an nth degree that it limits what we can really push ourselves and what we can really try to accomplish. Yeah, for couldn't agree. I think you said it beautifully. Couldn't agree more. Okay, so Doug, as I start off our conversation today, risk is certainly a fixture of today's business environment, where we want it to be or not. So what last piece of advice would you like to leave our listeners with on how they can truly pivot to being able to distinguish those unhealthy risks from the smart ones we've been discussing so they can go forward and really start putting some of the insights you've shared today into action? Uh, you know, start, you know, don't... Start at whatever level you feel comfortable at. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I'll give you an example here. Talking about in the shower, my wife had these soaps she really loved that she just bought from somewhere. And I was smelling them. I was like, ah, we could probably make some soap. So I got my eight-year-old son. I said, do you want to try to make soap? Yeah, let's try to do it. So we spent the last couple of months trying to make soaps, experimenting with this, experimenting with that. Uh, not rocket science, not tough at all, uh, but a little bit of chemistry, a little bit of commercialization and understanding what's out there. And, and you know, before you know it, you're kind of like starting to learn a new industry. And, hey, isn't this interesting? Now, who knows? This will ever go anywhere. But, you know, it's, it's just a little experiment to try to do something you've never done. Um, I would say start there. Uh, start with just doing something small that's different from your normal routine and then do another one and another one and another one. And the energy I think you'll find will just build. It will just grow. And your curiosity in general, not for any one topic, will just continue to grow. And then at some point somewhere, the, the bigger leap will present itself. And, th and then you'll, you'll, you'll decide whether you want to take that leap. And then, the, and then the bigger leap will present itself again, and you'll decide if you want to take that leap. And I think it'll be three or four or five years later, and you'll look back, and you'll be standing somewhere, and it'll be like the top of a staircase. You couldn't imagine ever standing there when you're at the bottom, but every step just got you a little bit closer, and, and, and each step was just a few inches up. And it, but if you don't start, you'll never get to that top step. So, you know, start now, start small, keep moving. And, you know, eventually you're going to find yourself at a kind of a whole nother plane. Great answer, Doug. I love that. And I have to say, my friend, this was long overdue. And I'm glad we finally got around to having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. So thanks for coming on my show today, Doug. I really appreciate it. This is great. Thanks, Tanvir. Really appreciate the time. I've been talking with Doug Sunheim about his book, Taking Smart Risks, How Sharp Leaders Win When Stakes Are High. To learn more about Doug, visit the webpage for this episode at tanvernasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, or by filling out the contact form at tavernaseer.com. And if you found my show on Google Play, iTunes, or Stitcher Radio, I'd appreciate it if you could take a moment and please rate my show. Until next time, this is Tavernaseer. Thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>